in three, two, one. The mind is the most powerful tool we have at our disposal. When you're down and out, it takes a fighting spirit to keep going, and more importantly, something worth fighting for. Aaron Volpatti is a former NHL player and a pioneer in visualization and performance mindset. Aaron joins us today to discuss the true power of the human mind and what is possible with visualization that will help you reframe adversity, instill a deep sense of trust in your journey, and demystify the impossible. Join me now for my conversation with Aaron Volpatti. Well, hey, Aaron, welcome to the program. We're so delighted to have you. Thanks, Michael. Excited to be here. Where are we talking to you from today? I'm in Vernon, British Columbia, so kind of central BC. Okanagan Valley, lovely place. Yeah, yeah I actually grew up about 75 miles just south of you there in a little town called Penticton. A good skiing in the winter, but summertime's the time to go. Yeah, and it's funny when you tell people it's wine country, they don't associate Canada with wine typically, and but it really is. That's yeah, a great area. I know all the orchards and the fruit growing up, picking up fruit as a kid and all the way down to Penticton, Naramata, Oliver, all the way, Kelowna, Vernon, that whole interior of British Columbia, a beautiful place and it's good wine country. And I know we compete with the folks in Ontario, in Canada. They think their wines are a little better as well. So, but we know who makes the best one. So I think uh, everyone knows that around here I, anyway. Yeah. I think so too. <laughs> hey, delighted to have you. I want to give everybody, you were a former NHL player and you've been a pioneer in visualization and performance mindset. And I know you hold a degree in human biology from Brown University. I know you played hockey there and in your studies. And I think visualization is important for our audience members, people who have their side gigs or they have their companies or CEOs, they run their own business. And we really want to get an understanding because there is a format for proper visualization. But before we get there, let's go back to the background just a little bit. So you're growing up in Revelstoke, Vernon area, and then you started playing hockey in junior hockey. Give everybody a little bit of background and then tell them some of your story because there was some real tragic events that happened that point you in this direction. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I grew up in a little town called Revelstoke, a little ski town. And I usually kind of preface everything and start my story with, you know, I was obviously pretty good. I ended up playing in the NHL, but I, I really wasn't that good. Above average in Revelstoke, sure. But I got cut from the select teams and played house hockey, which is the lowest level at 14 years old. And so I was definitely not destined for pro hockey and I was a fighter. So the games changed, right? And so maybe for any of your audience that isn't in the hockey world or doesn't live in that world, fighting is a role in hockey. We call it enforcing. We call it enforcing. Yeah. Maybe some people are shaking their heads, but it's more of a way to police the game in a way and change momentum. And regardless of views or not, it's a role. The reality of the game. And it was a very prominent role, especially 20 years ago and somewhat 10 years ago. I would say uh, still 10 years ago. And so that was my niche as a player was special skills, the grinder. I could hit. That was the one thing I did better than anyone. I could hit. I had a knack for it with the timing and the angles and all these things. And I could skate. And through that came the fighting. And just a side note on that, just side note on that Gretzky wouldn't have been Gretzky without Semenko. In those days, they're just too big. And you had to have somebody who was protecting. That's the job you did. And, And like I said, with the policing of it, just to fast forward, when we played 
Boston from 2010 to 2015 when I played. That's an example, but they had a tough team, Lucic, Thornton, all these guys. And so when I have someone in the trolley tracks and their head down, guess what? I let up a little bit because I don't want to fight and trade punches with those guys, really. No. Right? And so that's where it sort of polices itself. And I'm not a huge guy. I'm 6'1", 200 pounds, basically. Some of these guys are huge. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah. anyways, we could go down that rabbit hole all day right. on why fighting's there. That's how I snuck into junior A in Vernon, really. So I had one goal my first year junior A, barely stayed in the league. And so I had already, I like to say, put the governor on the dream and chipped away at what I thought I could actually accomplish long right. before junior hockey. So when I was about 15, 16, I didn't want to be naive at that time. And I said, I'm not going to play pro hockey and that's okay. And my new dream was the NCAA. I'm like, if I can just get a scholarship and go play four years and get an education, that'd be pretty damn sweet. And so that was my mindset. And to do that, you had to go play junior A. Right. Right. And they weren't exactly recruiting fighters in the NCAA because you can't fight in college. Right. Right. So I thought, okay, I just get into the league with fighting and then I'll add the layers as I go, which I did. And really where my life changed and where the story really starts. And if you've read the book, yeah. it opens with this incident and, 2005. Uh, in 2005. So I was almost 20 years old. Again, never talked to one scout yet. So most guys going to pro hockey, they're already there or they're close to that. And so again, for me, that wasn't an option at the time. So I was, how do I put this? A stupid teenager, really. You're partying out in BC somewhere. You're partying and you know, you're invincible at that age. We all yeah. do, or most of us do. And sure. I can reflect back now in my late thirties and know that, I mean, Hey, don't get me wrong. Part of the things I did were for adrenaline. I sought out adrenaline and attention, right? For sure. And you're feeding a young ego at that age, right? And yeah, just, I was always just doing stupid things for those reasons and living up to that, what I thought should, you know, the fighter stereotype, the persona to that and, and living up to that persona of what I thought I needed to be in a way, right? So there's right. all these factors looking back that went into it. And that's when this burn uh, incident happened. So I was messing around with gas and fire being a pyro for I reasons I've already said what. Yeah. And the year prior, I had done the same thing and everything went off with without a hitch. And I thought, okay, how am I going to make my show of recklessness and invincibility bigger and better than the year prior? So I thought in my head, I need more gas <laughs> and right. Not smart, but that was my thought process at the time. And yeah, I, I had two bottles, wine bottle and a Colt 45 bottle. So like the 750 milliliters each full of gas, right? So I'm walking around this party and I was soaking wet and one thing led to another and we had been drinking and I know there's a fire close by and I know I have gas that had spilt on myself. So the bottles had hit and broke. And so I have all this gas on me. And again, I know there's a fire there, but I just didn't respect the dangers of gasoline and the vapors associated with that. And I think maybe I wanted to be a good Samaritan and not just leave my sweater on the ground. Or I said, hey, I might as well just throw this in the fire and watch it burn. Right. To this day, I don't know why I did it, but I'm assuming that was my thought process maybe. But I just know I, I reeked like gas and I'm like, I just, I need to get this off. And I thought I kept a safe distance away and I was wrong. And it was like 
like it was like a detonator cord to dynamite. I, I was went to say that was the fuse. I went to throw the sweater in the fire and gave the ground kind of a little kick and tried to keep my distance. And that that flame just it just followed me and and up I went and I was literally a ball of fire running through the woods. Oh, terrible. Yeah. And and as you've read the book, it's where it starts. So I'm on fire. And that's when my life yeah, truly changed. Yeah, yeah, I think you got airlifted off to the Vancouver Hospital, Vancouver General. Yeah. And what percentage of your body was burned? Well, I was so I was 40% second, third degree burns. I mean, at that point, I was 100% burnt. Minimum a bad first degree burn, really. I mean, maybe except for my like knees down, not so much because the fire kind of, it rises, right. right? But yeah, we had finally gotten it out, which is a whole story in itself. But I basically just, that fight or flight kicked in and I just bolted, which was the worst thing I could have done. But right, add a know, little like oxygen I, to the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't just like tap out a gas fire. So I'm patting it, I'm rolling around and it just jumps around. Right. So you have to smother it. And of course, I'm in a huge state of panic and I'm not thinking straight. So yeah, I woke up, got airlifted to Vancouver Hospital, woke up the next day. And the first few days were pretty foggy. I don't remember a lot. I was pretty much asleep for two days straight. And uh remember seeing my parents come into focus every few hours kind of thing. And there was a lot of emotion, right? Because we didn't, at that time, we didn't know how badly I was burned, but we knew it was bad because Vancouver at the time, I think had 10 beds. So that's the 10 worst burns in the province. And then we didn't find out until the third day, which you get the initial debridement procedure, which we don't have to go totally into, but it's basically torture, right? They have to keep those third degree areas clean for infection risk and for the eventual skin graft that's going to go on top of that damaged tissue area. And that's when I came out of the anesthetic, woke up and the doctor relayed what I had just told you about being 40% second, third degree burn. And I said, you're lucky to be alive, number one, and your face isn't going to be permanently scarred. So all my damage is to my stomach and legs now, like I just have scarring. There. Sure. And everyone was just thankful I was alive at that point. Okay. But, in, but in my head, I was chasing the scholarship. So I only had one more year of junior eligibility left. And so now I'm laying in this burn unit and this doctor's telling me it's going to be a really long road. These recoveries take a long time. So I'm like, oh shit, what does that mean for my season in four months? Right. So you I had to be ready in four months if you're going to make it. That was when camp was going to start. Yeah. And so I asked him this and yeah, I'll never forget the look on his face. He kind of just froze and I knew right away way as soon as he had that look that it was over and he said exactly what i just said he's like these recoveries take years not months you're going to be in here for a while he didn't realize he was talking to a fighter though and i think that inner strength that was probably part of the catalyst to help you go because that's a big defining moment in your life huge going through what you're going through and then obviously you've got a timetable how am i going to make this timetable to do this how did you discover visualization techniques during the recovery yeah so initially i had listened to him right and so i thought my career was done right in that moment because why wouldn't i i look at myself and i'm hearing this guy's seen thousands of burns right he knows what he's talking about he knows what he's talking about and i just figured that's what the future would look like and so that all changed and you talk about the fighter and that fighting spirit that's right you could call it an epiphany or kind of fork in the road i had where i got a call from my coach two weeks into my stay in the burn unit from junior hockey in vernon and he said hey i was just talking with 
these coaches from Brown University, and they were after a specific type of player. And his exact words were, we want a guy that can put the fear of God in the defenseman of the Ivy League. <laughs> and that was my role. That's what I what I did. Yeah. So he said, I, I have the perfect guy for you. There's just one major problem. He's in the burn unit and the future doesn't look promising. So yeah, to paint a picture for you, I'm wrapped like a mummy in this bed in the burn unit. I can't move and in a ton of pain. And they just said, give them, give them a call, right? My parents take down the number because I can't use my hands still. And they put the phone between my head and my shoulder and I kind of hold it in there and call this coach from Brown University. And that phone call was left pretty open-ended, really. They said, we're sorry to hear what happened. We wish you the best in, in recovery. And that was pretty much it. I think they might have said, maybe we'll get to see you play one day down the road, almost as a formality kind of thing. Sure. Knowing that I only had one more kick at the can here, one more They're year. They're being nice about it. Yeah. And I remember hanging up the phone and, and getting super emotional with my parents there and because we all knew that I only had this one year remaining. And I had waited my whole life to talk to one of these guys. Right. And I finally had done it and look where I was and look what I had done to myself with this accident. And that's when I really started asking why. So I said, okay, I can't play hockey this next year. So why? And there was a lot of good reasons why, right? The list seemed to go on and on. Infection was probably number one For with sure. burns. That risk is, is really high. The skin grafts were going to be very limiting, very fresh, painful. They take a long time to heal by nature. You're working your chest when you're skating full out or even coming in or even getting hit yeah. or hitting, you know, or checking as we would call it in the sport um, yeah. or aggressively checking. That's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. Time. And with the legs, you need full range of motion to be explosive and, and be able to skate. So that wasn't exactly going to be ideal. Right. <laughs> and I had to wear a full body suit for two years. You wouldn't be able to sweat from those grafted areas because you burn you burn through everything at that point right. nerves sweat glands everything yeah and if we were creeping up to like 30 40 percent potentially grafted areas and your heart rate gets up and you can't cool down there's complications there so the list just seemed to go on and on and basically in my head this is where i had this epiphany really and i just thought basically you're telling me it's going to hurt too much again I was young. Right. Right. But that's what that's what I thought. And I thought, well, it can't be worse than what I've just gone through for the last two weeks. And that was a little bit naive in the moment, too. <laughs> but yeah. I made a decision right there. And I think for me, that's always been the most empowering, I think, piece in my life is just we always have that choice. So once I made that choice, honestly, my mindset was I was willing to die before giving up. It really was. So I said, I don't accept this prognosis. You don't know me. I'm not like all those other burn patients you've had. And, and I basically said no. And I made a decision that I was going to come back and play hockey that fall and get a scholarship. And again, I had to rethink that victim mindset I had, I guess, in the first two weeks because I had rolled over and died, so to speak. But it was like that dangling carrot with that phone call. And I made that choice. And so this is how I discovered visualization. I was bedridden in a burn unit and I couldn't move. And once I had made this choice... I figured that was the only thing I could do because my mind was all I had, right? And so I thought, well, okay, well, I'm going to be able to move at some point, but currently I cannot do that. So again, that's all I had. And so I had heard of visualization, but at the time I didn't read a fancy book 
or anything like that. Right. I had just heard of it. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to start visualizing everything that I want. And so that practice started developing quickly, right? Because once I had made this decision, I had built this practice where I would visualize really four different things in that burn unit. So the first was the healing aspect. Visualize so the healing. I'm like a science geek and I had always loved biology. So I knew about cells and some of the processes, things like that. So I would literally visualize healing at like a cellular level and imagine those third degree areas shrinking and the cells getting healthier and healthier. With rejuvenating every, and yeah. rejuvenating with every breath. The next thing I would imagine was walking out of the burn unit and feeling the wind on my face and knowing where I was going, which would eventually lead me to that Vipers season opener that fall, right? And really trying to create this experience, which at the time, I didn't know how important that was, was to create the actual experience. But I started to be able to do that with practice. And again, just the emotion associated with that comeback and the fact that that I had done it, again, this is in my mind, but that home opener, when I was told that that wasn't possible, you're and already there, there now. And there, and there I was. What was the pain level like? So on a one to 10, 10 in the burn unit, you're there. And now you're going to camp, you're training, and you're playing the home opener. What was the pain level like when you played at that time on a one to 10? Oh, yeah. I don't think, I don't think anything can quite top the car ride to the Vernon hospital once the shock had wore off. Yeah. And then the debridement procedures and things like that. That was, that was a 10. I don't think it gets worse than that in pain, really. And you hear, I mean, burn injuries, people hear yeah, that. Yeah, that was painful. one of the most painful things. So when you're so, playing hockey in that first game, what was that like? Yeah, I would say that that was more of just like this. It was like a really deep grabbing type of pain versus like the knife being buried into your skin, needles in your skin kind of burn pain, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, it does. But, well, well, well described. Yeah. So for me, when I started playing, I started having issues surrounding the burns now. So I had pelvis issues because I was pushing my body sure. well beyond what it was maybe capable of, I guess. Uh, I mean, it was more the governor, right? So I had this mindset, but the body was like, hey, hey, whoa, we're trying to recover from this major surgery here. And you're trying to skate. You're putting these open second degree areas under your hockey gear that hasn't been washed in 20 years. So, but yeah, I started having all these complications. The list of surgeries and complications that summer really just started to pile on, you know. Oh, well, you've got a lot of chapters in the book and the book's a good read. You talk all about, you know, from being the mummy all the way through the setbacks. Yeah, and... there's just setback upon setback because again, my body was saying, hey, we're trying to heal here. And so I had yeah, kidney stones, an appendectomy where they actually had to cut through my skin graft to get it right before Ugh. camp. And then I had this pelvis issue, which no one could quite put their finger on. But basically, they said, you have this major trauma and skin grafts to your thighs. It's not really that surprising that everything's trying to compensate, right? And so for me, I was just holding on by a thread at that point, I really was. And Brown finally came to watch me. And so that was going back to the visualization practice quickly in the burn unit. That was like my guiding star. And kind of this ending was this, I would just obsess with signing that commitment letter to Brown in my mind over and over and over again. Because again, I was laying in the burn unit the whole time. So it almost transported me into this other reality in a way, which effectively it does do that. Well, that's part of the process. So it is, that, yeah, that's, it's looking yeah. at where am I at really? And then where do I want to be? Yeah. So I ended up going to Brown and I ended up hanging up the skates 
in Vernon that last year because I mean, if you look at my stats, I played, I think, 25 games. And that was because once I had done it, I had to kind of turn that switch off and say, okay, well, it's time to get healthy now because I was not healthy at right. all. I was still recovering, but I still think back to this day and just think, man, what would my life look like if I had given up? And not that it would have been bad. It would have just been very, very different without hockey for sure. And then I went to Brown. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Aaron Volpatti. So now you're playing at Brown and I think you were four years at Brown and yeah. your last year, I know you did your job well, cause I think you had about 120 penalty minutes or something. You, <laughs> you racked them up pretty good there. Depends if there were two minute roughings or five minute for fighting, right? Well, you can't and, fight. So there wasn't a lot of that going on, but you still got a lot of good time in there. And then you got drafted or you got picked by Signed, the Vancouver yeah. Canucks. And so let's talk about that transition. And so now you're playing at Brown, you're healing. So year two, year three. Yeah. Things are getting better for you. And now are you even anticipating, hey, I got a chance to go to the show here? Yes. So somewhat. So when I went to Brown, those first three years, again, that was my NHL. I yeah. thought that was it. And I didn't have the wherewithal at that time in my life to think what's next or, hey, right. what else could I do? Because that was the absolute pinnacle for me. Right. And my perspective on life had changed a lot when you go like through a near-death yeah, experience like that. I was yeah. like, honestly, I'm just going to go live it up and have a blast being a division one college athlete in the States. Again, that was my dream for a long time at that point. Yeah, I'm there. And yeah. don't get me wrong. Like I worked my ass off and I was in really good shape and all that stuff and had solidified my role again on the fourth line. But that's not really someone that the pro teams are recruiting, you know, a fourth line player grinder on one of the worst teams in college hockey. And so for me, again, I hadn't thought about it yet. Right. And that all changed again. So this is when I had kind of the second epiphany, you could say in my life, one of the assistant coaches came up to me after our season. So I'm 24 now and still had not thought about pro hockey. And he pulled me aside and, and he asked me that. He said, have you ever thought about playing pro hockey. And I laughed in his face and said, I've literally never thought about it. So I was taken pre-med and figured I would maybe go be a doctor, get involved in sports medicine or something sure. in that area, but definitely not pro hockey. And he said, I really think if you worked on your game, I've never seen anyone hit the way you can hit. I know you can fight because of that going back to the junior days and you can skate. And if you worked on those skill parts of your game, I really think you could have a good shot at a five, 10 year career in the AHL, which is right below the NHL and maybe even get a shot in the show one day. And I thought, I didn't really know what to say. I okay, well, thank you. But that was kind of it. And I went home that night and right away and thought back to the burn unit. And I was like, man, if I can do that, 
then maybe there's something here. And it was like that kind of carrot dangling again. And that carrot said, hey, dummy, you might have been leaving a little bit on the table here the last three years. And I had this light bulb go off and say, what you're thinking about doing now should be easier than overcoming that injury because I was told that was impossible. Yeah, that's an Everest climb that. So no other way to put it. And so that's when I made that choice. And once I had made that choice that I was going to play in the NHL and I wouldn't stop till I got there, I had to go back to what I was like, what do I know that had gotten me out of the burn unit? And it was the visualization practice. So I call it cinematic mind mapping. But that's when I really came up with this idea of creating and directing this movie of what I wanted my life to look like. And so I, I would open it up with a short beginning because I don't really advocate for my clients to focus too much on the past because it is the past. Right. But that being said, it's a movie. So I want you to think about really early childhood memories. So for me, for example, hockey, when did I fall in love with the game of hockey and start there with the love for the game? So I did that. And then I would kind of fast forward through my childhood and then I'd go to the burn unit. And because that gave me a superpower, it really did. And then that would translate into what I would imagine my journey to look like. And that journey was really focused on the senior year at Brown. So I said, if I'm going to play in the NHL, I'm going to have to absolutely dominate this senior year because I'm 24 and no one knows who I am yet. Yeah. Right. So I would imagine that and we can get into the different types of visualization, but the one type rehearsal imagery, which is the successful execution of a skill in your sport. And for your audience, if you're not an athlete, it can be successful execution of a presentation or a talk or meeting a team meeting, right? And just really rehearsing it. And so for me, I would imagine just dominating the games. And I scored probably tens of thousands of goals in my head that year. You had a good scoring year, though, 2010. And yeah, the goals and assists, you tripled basically what you were doing in the years prior to. Yeah. And most people that don't know the story think that it was, hey, Aaron just kind of figured it out and maybe got a little bit lucky here. And there's a lot more to it than that. And practice is a big reason why. Biggest reason why. So I always say the ending is like the guiding star. And that was the NHL. So I would, again, think of an ending of a really powerful, emotionally charged movie positively emotionally charged what would that look like so for me it was just thinking about putting on that gear for the first time and walking out that tunnel to this huge huge crowd right right but then always circling it back to where i had come from and the why behind it so the purpose which i'm sure yeah. your audience would be familiar absolutely with that, yeah, right? familiar and, with that but that was a huge huge part of it that's almost like the theme of the movie is the purpose and the why which is really important too so i had developed this visualization practice now to essentially transport myself into this reality of this movie. And I basically walked around that whole senior year at Brown, like I already played in the NHL. Mm. Right. Let's see the end in mind. And you talk about that in your mastermind. That's one of your weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I think we would all agree that we can't predict the future. I've had enough things happen to me that in my life that I know that's not true. Right. Right. Because, yeah, we're not going to predict the curveballs that are going to come our way. But I know that we can greatly influence and shape and mold the future with what's projected on that big screen in the back of our mind. Yeah. Right. And so the thing is, we're not wired as human beings to project positive things back there. We're wired to think about what could hurt us and past mistakes. And we typically will rehearse the negative outcome because we're fearful of it. And that's just our brain's 
protection mechanism, but it's detrimental. It's self-sabotage to our performance. And and good insight there. Yeah. But for me, the level of confidence that came with the visualization practice was frankly, it was mind blowing for me. Right. And listen, this isn't to say that, and I have to tell everyone this, the visualization practice that I teach, it's not a sit on your ass on the couch and visualize till your dreams come true, obviously. Right, right. Right. So what it does, aside from the benefits of visualization alone, it also will put you into action because your brain goes, I really like that that version of Aaron or that version of Michael, maybe say whatever, if you created your movie and I want to do everything I can to make sure that happens. So then those choices we have every day, maybe sometimes the harder choices, they start to become easier and non-negotiable choices because you're going to do everything in your power to make sure that that happens. And so I've lived that and I know it to be true. And so I became obsessed with that dream and My mindset wasn't, it wasn't a goal. It wasn't, I hope I get there. It was, this is where I'm going and I'm not going to stop until I get there. Yeah, you become unstoppable. So it sounds like you're having a storyboard like a movie. You call it a cinematic mind mapping, which I'm curious what that is, but you're seeing the movie before. It's like you're having your storyboard. You're seeing the good, the bad, everything around it and visualizing, seeing what that looks like. Similar Um, to a storyboard, yeah. Yeah. And you're going to have your characters, your villain, everything that goes into that. And then all of our actions and behaviors start with thoughts, right? So if I think I can do it, then the behaviors follow the thoughts. So the thoughts, the most important part, let's kind of dive into that a little bit and then we'll come back and we'll continue the story. But you developed a 12 week visualization mastermind course. So it obviously it takes a little time. Let's just talk about cinematic mind mapping. Unpack that one for us for a little bit. Yeah. So that is the 12 week program. And it's basically structured as every week is another layer or chapter or scenes added to this movie. So for my clients, you are going to be the director of this movie and I'm going to help and guide you through that. And again, it's adding layers to that movie. So we start with a beginning and then we talk about the current. So where are you now? which is the present is ever fleeting, but it's like a recognition of today being the start of a major shift or change in yourself because you're going to go here now. And it's again, that recognition. And that's where we talk about things like affirmations and self-image of who you are, but then also do we need to adjust that for who you want to become? So then we write the journey, which has a bunch of different parts in it. Right. So for example, that's where we insert the rehearsal imagery piece. So I guess I should preface it with the two types of visualization. So yeah, there are uh, two types. And I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So the one I had mentioned is the rehearsal imagery, which is the successful execution of the skills, whether it be your sport or your business, there's going to be skills associated with that, right? So immersing yourself in the act of performing that skill, that's where it's inserted in the journey part of the movie. The second type is the belief, or you could call it manifestation imagery. And right. that's where there's a lot, a lot of research on the science behind manifestation and the subconscious mind and rewiring that subconscious mind. Because again, we're not 
typically wired to project good things back there because of this subconscious mind that we're pre-programmed with from a young age, right? That's right. It's like an iceberg. You've got the conscious is that top third of the iceberg, it is. two thirds below the water. And I've got a good friend, Vince Bassani wrote the book, Ant and the Elephant. And he oh, talks yeah, yeah, about, the, and, the, and the elephant is our subconscious mm -hmm. and the ant is us. And you might be headed west and thinking I'm heading this direction, but if the elephant's headed east, yeah. you don't even know. So sometimes it requires a coach sometimes it requires somebody looking at us outside because we all have blind spots yeah. to be able to help us create that story what's interesting as you say that and talk about this the hero's journey the formula for movies comes mm -hmm. to mind here if we think of star wars or any of the major movies you've got the villains you've got the antagonists yeah. all the things that go on but the hero is the person in the story so let's say luke skywalker i'm dating yeah. myself but we all know star wars yeah. and then all of a sudden comes the guide Obi-Wan and later Yoda, they don't solve Luke's problems. They help guide him through that process. And he goes through a period where he self-doubt. You've gone yeah. through self-doubt. You got a period where you got to see what you're looking for. You've got to embrace, right? Use the force, you know, and that's where those terms come from. So that's a good form of that visualization and they're guiding him through. And that's the role that you do in your mastermind program. Totally. And yeah. And I like how you, in week number one, you're talking about it as the undiscovered superpower. And I think it is a superpower, but a lot of people don't know how to do that. When I talk about visualization in my programs, I talk about the Olympians, the bobsled, the luge guides. Mm -hmm. When you watch the Winter Olympics, you always see them doing the Stevie Wonder Bob with their head, right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, they're visualizing, they're going through the course yeah. and you have to see the end in mind. That's week three in your course program. How yeah. did you come up with the 12 weeks though? I'm interested because you talk about you're visualizing it and then, you know, week two, you're unbreakable. So you're obviously layering in the yeah. precepts and the concepts. Why 12 weeks? What kind of results do you see when somebody starts this journey 12 weeks later? What are expected outcomes? Yeah, I think I wanted to structure it over 12 weeks because if I threw everything at you in a short amount of time, it would be too much. It's a fire hose and it takes, it takes time to learn how to visualize. It's a type of meditation really. And yeah, if you've had, especially not a lot of experience with it, then that monkey brain can sometimes take over. So that's why I structured it is to add those layers slowly. So basically it's like one week in between. Right. Right. And it's like, okay, for this week. So example for week one is the rehearsal imagery, because those are kind of, I don't want to say quick wins, but in a way, this is something that can affect your performance right now. Setting the stage. You're setting, setting the, the stage. stage, right? So just imagine executing the things that you want to happen. And foundational, short, foundational few, work needs to be there. A few minutes a day kind of thing. So the first weeks are, I want you to roughly write the movie. So every week is a theme in, like I said, the movie or the timeline, I guess you could sure. say. So after one and two, which is rehearsal imagery and, and dealing with mistakes, right? Because I mean, if we don't know how to deal with mistakes, then we're going to be self-sabotaging ourselves all right. the time. So when you get to week three, like you said, with started with the end in mind, the movie really starts to take place and we write it starting week three. Right. So that's the end. So like you said, what's the end look like here? Where do you want to go? Yeah. And then from there, so from week three to week six, seven, that's where we write the movie. And then after that, we add other layers to it. So like soundtracks, what's your why behind the movie? So what's the theme of the movie? You want to go here? Well, why do you want why to go do, there? Why, why do you want to go there? If right. you don't know why, then I hate to break it to you. You ain't going to go there, right? So it's really just adding the layers into it after that. Sure. It's really structured, I guess, high level. The first two weeks is quick wins and dealing with mistakes to help you today. 
Yeah. And then the movie, the chapters, I guess, or the scenes are written from week three to week seven, like I said. And then after that is, okay, let's refine it. Let's add other layers. So again, you're starting to embed it now. So the minute you bring in the soundtrack, you watch a movie without a soundtrack and it doesn't look that good. If it's a scary movie, we want a scary soundtrack. It has a very different feel, right? Completely different feel. And then you get into the why of doing it, which makes sense. Why do I want to do this? People don't realize that they're on the journey anyway. They have a story anyway. They can either consciously decide the story and determine the story for them, or they can let the story unfold as it unfolds. Either way, they're in a story and they're going to be up. So why not design it when we have the ability to design it? That just makes more sense for me. And then you talk about senses. What's the role of senses in this whole process? Well, so we want to make this visualization experience as real as possible. So our brain doesn't know the difference between the mental execution and us physically going out and executing whatever it is, the skill or living in this ending, if we can mentally do it. The feeling of the ending. What's that going to feel like when I get there? Yeah. So there's a caveat there, though. We have to immerse ourselves in it and it has to be vivid for it to feel real. So that's where we talk about the senses. So for the ending, for example, I have a worksheet in that week, like who's around you? So who's there? What do you see? Can you touch and feel anything? So for me, it was you walk into an NHL room and I would imagine seeing that jersey in an NHL locker room with my name and with my favorite number. And that all smells like new equipment. So that's really powerful for like goalies that I work with. Cause the cool thing about goalies is they get to have their own personalized mask. Right. Yeah, right. So I'm like, if you could have any mask you want with whatever, imagine that that's sitting there and you get to grab it. So now I want you to imagine you're holding it and feel it. And again, it has that new smell to it and the visual of everything. And that will hopefully evoke emotion. Yeah. That's the other thing is what can you now feel? The experience is the feeling, right? And that's what really immerses us there is we need to evoke emotion. If there's no emotion, then we're not really tapping into the subconscious and change isn't really happening to that effect we want. No, that's that's powerful. And I can see that the more you picture it, you know, I've even seen studies where they have pro basketball players go out and shoot hoops. Then they have one group and they measure their stats. And then they have another group that just simply visualizes themselves actually shooting hoops. And they perform better. They, right. Know. And our pianists are big ones too, where people will just visualize playing. And again, they don't see a difference. Or sometimes, like you said, the people visualizing somehow had better outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why is that? And it's because it the brain can't recognize the difference. Another example is I get people to imagine. I took this from a book I read. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he talks about cutting a lemon, right? And it's really, again, a testament to that mind-body connection, right? where if you really imagine feeling it, cutting it, and putting it up to your nose and smelling it, and kind of anticipating squeezing some of that lemon juice on your tongue. Again, you're visualizing this. You'll probably start to salivate. And that's like the Pavlov experiment or just imagine imagine your favorite food. You're probably going to start to drool because again, you're brave. I totally get it. Right. Small barbecue going or something. Yeah. Let's go back to the story for a sec. Let's go to the day. Okay. You're Vancouver Canucks. You move out of the AHL. So it looked a little bit different than that. So from college, I signed with the Canucks, but it was a two-way contract. Mm -hmm. So meaning they could have me play in the AHL or the NHL, right? So I started in Manitoba with the Moose and then 
it was such an interesting dynamic for me that year because the moose i was making a decent salary in the ahl because the canucks again yeah had given absolutely i've given me the contract right so they expected production from me in the moose and i got to pro and you realize quickly that even in the ahl like these are the best players in the world now and skill wise i wasn't really up there for that right i i had shown that in my last season at brown but the playing field gets very even because you're talking yeah, really again, quick yeah really quick and so for me i had to recognize okay remember i'm still visualizing this movie every day how am i going to make the nhl and i quickly realized it wasn't going to be through scoring goals i think again i always had to revert back to my grinder fighting role sure sure so i said this is going to be the quickest way there i was 25 now so i'm like i don't have a ton of time here you're getting to be an old man in the league yeah well, yeah, yeah especially nowadays the league's so young right yeah, um, i remember they used to look older than me and now i'm looking i'm like my grandkids yeah. Right. So I knew that that was my way in. When I signed, the Canucks and myself had aspirations that I could be eventually like a third line guy, maybe score 10 goals a year kind of thing. But I wasn't going to be scoring 30 goals a year in the NHL. No. I think everyone knew that. And so again, that was my way in. So the interesting dynamic was Manitoba was like, hey, no, we're paying you some good money. We need you to score goals. So I was always like button heads with them about, I was playing, but Vancouver was always calling myself and my agent saying, we love it. Don't change a thing. Well, I was kind of like, I remember always talking to my agent. I don't know what to do here. He's like, well, where do you want to play? And that was an easy answer. And I said, yeah, well, Vancouver. So because I had solidified myself pretty quick as one of the up and comers in terms of that role. Right. So I was doing pretty well with the fighting and laying some pretty big hits. And there were some injuries. I don't want to advocate for hurting anyone, but that's just the reality. It's a mean physical game. Yeah, yeah. And the reality was it brought the attention when there's someone after a fight laying there. Well, the big club likes that. And sort of the fans, a lot of the fans do. And too. the fans like yeah, it. And the fans yeah. do too. It's one of the only sports like if it happened in basketball or yeah. we see in football, they're screaming right. about it. But with hockey, it's kind of like it's the way. No and one's sitting down when a fight happens. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when I always say, hey, it always breaks out around the referee and yeah, the linesman yeah. and the referee jumps in really quick. So you don't want to be at it too long, but you want to get your licks in and go and you're wearing lots of equipment. So it's, yep. yeah. So, yeah. So I get called into the office in Manitoba one day and I think, what are we going to get into now? He's going to tell me I'm not playing or something. That's what I'm thinking. And I walked into his office, kind of hesitated. And he said, pack your bags, you're going up. And I was like, that's the last thing I expected you to tell me, but sweet. So I had that movie had, had come true. You know, a couple this visualization days. stuff's actually working for me. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty remarkable, to be honest. And I've had other things happen in my life where I know now. So now I have the wherewithal to think what's next and use it as a daily practice versus a tool right. to just get something I want. Careful so what you wish for, right? Or so visualize. That's, that's what's changed for me is in the burn unit and even signing that NHL contract, both times it was like, yes, very powerful in getting what I wanted, but with what I've gone through emotionally and spiritually, even after retirement and the power it's had on me in that sense, I was like, whoa, I didn't even realize how important this is to practice it daily, not just to not maybe even fix something or get something I want. It's just it's exercise. You need to do it on a regular basis. We you, just you gotta, 
Yeah, every day. So, so now I've realized that, obviously. But when you're going out onto the ice now, so you're walking out into the arena, and I've been in that arena a number of times, and you're yeah. walking into it, the fans, you're getting introduced, or maybe you're in a thing, people cheering for you or do whatever. Did the senses and things that you're experiencing, the sights, the sound, the smell, did it match your visualization? Yeah, it did, which was the really cool part. For me, the coolest, most surreal part of my first NHL game was really the fact that I was literally living this movie and I almost had to pinch myself because I had seen it so many times in my head. But instead of opening my eyes and seeing my wall or wherever I was, I was like, holy shit. I'm like, now like the credits don't roll in my head. It's like, I got to go play a game now. Right. And I, I really gave myself permission to just really enjoy that first game. Good for you. Because I mean, yeah, did I try and rehearse you talk about rehearsal imagery sure but for me it was like knowing where i had come from with that adversity yeah. and really living it's gotta be this, a nice feeling this movie gotta be a nice validated it was really feeling. really really surreal so it was just pure enjoyment that one and then yeah no and, then, reason. and then the the world keeps spinning and it's like okay well what's next well now let's talk about that you go for five years and you're playing in the league and then you unexpectedly get another setback, another tragedy mm -hmm. occurred. It came to an end a few years later due to an injury. Yeah. And you talk about it in your book, Fighter. So you describe this as a dark time in your life as it forced you to make new changes. And you were chronic pain, loss of identity. It was a low moment for you, mm -hmm. right? How did you just quickly give the lowdown what occurred? And then how did you migrate out of that? Like you said, the identity crisis, I was really searching for the next thing. And what the hell am I going to do with the rest of my life here? And so I worked in wealth management for a few years, kicked some doors open, went through a lot of personal adversity along the way through that. But I was, yeah, really struggling with what I was going to do and who I was, like you, like we said, the identity. Sure. And, and then COVID hit. And I remember going on a walk and I went to sit on a bench and I did my visualization practice. This day was, it was more of a meditation. Sure. But just closing my eyes. And then the thought of the book and my story about that popped into my head because the book had always been a side project yeah. for me, because especially with all my buddies on that team that had witnessed the behind the scenes of what I went through to be able to play, everyone was like, you got to write a book about this. Is, this is crazy, Yeah, which, which maybe it was. And so this is almost 20 years after now. And a lot of it was I mean, I was busy. I was busy playing hockey and living out this movie that we had just talked about. But a big part of it was being vulnerable and being okay with that. Because as men, I think you might agree, but especially as a man in hockey, we're not taught to talk about our feelings and talk about the troubles we've gone through and all these things. No, right? no. So that was a major hurdle for me, I guess, to be okay with that. You talk about the choice. So I remember thinking I was really searching for the next thing. And I made the choice. I'm like, I think it's time to to tell yeah. this story. I mean, for me, I was like, if I can help one person stay in the fight a little bit longer or realize the power of, of the mind, then that's a win for me. And right. so I thought, okay, it's time to do this. And we gave back to the burn fund uh, sure. for the first few months and raised a bunch of money, which was awesome. And yeah. it was really about getting out of my own way and being able to make a difference with it. Yeah. Absolutely. And and then through that, it led me into the coaching and speaking 
that I do now as well. It's just so funny how life works and how all the adversities have led to such amazing things. And that's not right. that's not an accident, right? No, and, well, and you've evolved and you've matured over the years. You know, our researcher, sure. she put a little note into it. Behind that tough exterior, I'm just reading a direct quote in her notes <laughs> to me. She says, behind that tough exterior, I think he's a real romantic. Is that true? <laughs> Is that true? I like, I, like to, I like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. No, it's, uh, well, generally fighters in the NHL are always labeled the nicest guys off the ice. So I'd like to think I fall into one of those categories. Yeah, exactly. You take it out on the ice and that's where it stays. And then right. you're not holding the grudge. And then yeah, obviously yeah. the rivalries get into it. But like I say, if you get a player off his game and he's thinking about you instead of playing yeah. the game, that's the name of the game. Hey, Aaron, this was really insightful. Thank you for sharing your story with us. We'll put everything in the show notes, but who's an ideal client for you? So speaking, you speak to corporate audiences, you speak workshops, um, um, you know, keynote programs, yep. we know you do that. You've got your great course, which they can take. It's 12 weeks, which I think is great. That's the way to form new habits. And it's nicely yeah. laid out. You've got a structure to it. People can yep. go check that out. They can check out your book, Fighter. And then consulting on the consulting side, who's an ideal customer or client for you? Who should be giving you a ring? Yeah, honestly, really any corporation going through maybe some changes. My workshops with in the corporate side are all about the dynamic leadership. So really instilling leadership at every level in the corporation. And there's a lot of things that translate from sport and, and corporate. It's a great right? metaphor. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, there's yeah. lots of things that translate. And for me, I just know being a leader and seeing how people follow that and how they can follow that, but also the awareness of, oh, I could be, I can be a leader in my cohort or my relative peer kind of thing. And then the opportunity to move up. And we talk about how visualization can help at being a leader, right? And having this hierarchy of, we talk about values, uh, systems, purpose, and how visualization really feeds that and kind of waters it and grows roots like a tree almost. Well said. And I encourage people, if they want to learn their strategies or techniques, they can go to your website and book a call directly with you. And yep. again, we'll have that all in the show notes. Aaron, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing your story with us, your insights, making time for us. I think you're a great ambassador for this subject matter and your story is great. Most people will never have to go through the trials and the tribulations that you had to go through and overcome. And your story is still coming. There's more chapters to come but you have the yeah, tools you yeah. have the tools to help you create that movie and sometimes things happen and on movie sets right and know, you have yeah. to roll with it and you have to say you know i'm going to keep that one in or that one's going out of the movie so put it on the cutting room floor and, and keep moving on and that's your story so pleasure having you thank for being our guest yeah thanks michael i had a blast thank you again this podcast is created and associated with summit media my production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.